Well, we live in a world of extravagant claims. From politicians to advertisers to occasionally even scientists, we're bombarded with claims day in, day out that our lives can be made better if we only vote for this particular party or moisturise with this particular anti-aging cream or adjust our diet in any number of ways. And my personal favourite set of extravagant claims recently came in the titles of a pair of books by the hypnotist Paul McKenna. I don't know if you know, but I know of him. The books are entitled I Can Make You Thin and I Can Make You Rich. Now, I've not actually read these books myself, so I can't attribute either my fine physique or my enormous personal wealth to Mr. McKenna. But I think when you look at the titles of these books, it illustrates the sort of claims we hear around us every day. They've both been huge bestsellers. They tapped into that widely held fear in our society that we're either fat or we're poor or we're both. And they promised that just by reading the contents of these books, we could deal with those problems once and for all. It is quite a claim to make. But we live in a world of extravagant claims. And as a result, many of us have learnt to become sceptical or even cynical about the claims we hear all around us. We refuse to believe the adverts and the politicians and the latest scientific research. It all just sounds too good to be true, that we can be fitter, happier, younger looking, wealthier. We just don't believe it anymore. But if you're a Christian here today, it's not only the world around us that makes some pretty extravagant claims. Because the Bible does too. See, the God of Christianity is a God who makes extravagant claims. He claims to have created the world just by speaking. And he claims to be judge over the world. He claims to be the one true God. And he claims to have the authority to tell us how we should live. See, the God in whom Christians believe is a God of extravagant claims. And those claims just get more extravagant when we come to Jesus Christ. Because the early Christians believed that Jesus was no ordinary man. They claimed he was the Son of God. He was God made man, God with us. They claimed he was born of a virgin, that he had never sinned, and that he had the authority to forgive us our sin. And they claimed that he chose to go to a cross, to die in our place, and then three days later to rise again and live forever. See, what are we to make of these claims? See, we've had one of them read to us already, an extravagant claim from John's Gospel. John writes, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John tells us that if we believe in Jesus, we will have life because Jesus is alive. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't the end. He rose again, he appeared to his disciples, he ascended into heaven, and he promises life to everyone who trusts in him. What are we to make of this extravagant claim? Because last week we saw from the first half of John 20 that belief in the risen Jesus isn't just a minor quirk 
in Christianity that we can ignore. It's not just an unimportant doctrine. No, the risen Jesus stands at the heart of the Christian message and at every Christian's life and hope for the future. So Jesus showed Mary Magdalene in the first part of John 20 that his resurrection was the message she was to share with the disciples and the disciples were to share with the whole world. So if you're a Christian here this morning, the risen Jesus is your message to the world. See, we need to be confident that Jesus is alive. If we're to share that message with the world, we need to be confident that it's true, that it stands up to scrutiny, that Jesus really is risen. To share a message with someone, we need confidence in that message. And many of us might naturally feel sceptical that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Many of us may wrestle with doubts about that. In many ways, it just sounds too good to be true. Well, if you're a Christian here this morning, the good news for you is that John wrote this gospel so that you could have confidence that Jesus is risen today. And if you're not a Christian this morning, well, the good news is that John wrote this gospel that you could have confidence that Jesus is risen today, that you could put your trust in him and find life in his name. See, John gives us that aim here in verse 31. The claim he makes for his book is even greater than anything Paul McKenna could have dreamt up. John is not content with making us thin or rich. He wants to give us life through Jesus Christ. And that life is dependent on Jesus crucified and Jesus risen. So John makes extravagant claims for Jesus this morning. Because he believes that the Lord he follows extravagantly defeated sin and death, that we could be free of them and have a relationship with him. So that begs the question, can we believe this morning that Jesus really did rise from the dead? And it's to help us answer that question that John includes in his account of Jesus' life this appearance of Jesus to Thomas, one of his disciples. And in some ways Thomas stands in our place in this account as he struggles to believe that Jesus is risen. See, Thomas's struggles may feel familiar to you. And as a result, many readers of John feel a lot of sympathy and affection for Thomas in this episode. But I want us to see this morning that as well as an encouragement to us, Thomas stands as a challenge to us. Because at the end of this account, Jesus rebukes Thomas for being so slow to believe in him. And we need to ask ourselves why that is. See, we're going to see this morning that the doubts we can have about Jesus' resurrection are not always as straightforward and natural as they may first appear. And that Thomas is here in part to warn us of the dangers of unbelief and doubt. See, John wants his readers to have confidence that Jesus is risen. Confidence enough to entrust our whole lives to him. And Thomas, Thomas's meeting with Jesus here is designed to give us that confidence. So let's just set the scene for verse 24 of chapter 20 here. Well, at the beginning of John 20, we saw last week Mary Magdalene 
finds Jesus' tomb empty. She's seen him crucified, she's seen him buried, but now he was gone. Simon, Peter and John also find the tomb empty. And then Mary Magdalene meets first two angels and then the risen Jesus himself. And Jesus tells her to tell his other disciples that he is risen. Mary obeys him. And then in verses 19 to 23, Jesus appears to the other disciples while they're in a locked room together. And he tells them, peace be with you. Verse 20 tells us that Jesus showed them his hands and his side, still bearing the marks of his crucifixion, to prove to them that it really was him standing in front of them, resurrected. And the disciples respond with joy at this. Verse 20, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. See, Jesus is risen. This is a time of celebration for Jesus' disciples. But then we learn in verse 24 that one disciple has missed out on this celebration. Verse 24. I'll just read that for us. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas missed out. We don't know why, but he was somewhere else. So that when the disciples tell him what they've seen, Thomas famously does not believe them. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Here's where Doubting Thomas got his name. And again, I want us to see that many of us will find Thomas an appealing character here. He cannot bring himself to believe that Jesus is alive. Why? Well, verse 24 tells us. Because he wasn't there. And in that, Thomas is like the vast majority of John's first readers. And he's like every single person here this morning. We weren't there when Jesus appeared to his disciples. So like Thomas, we have to decide whether or not we believe the other disciples when they tell us what they saw. See, at this stage in John's account of the resurrection, the risen Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and to ten of his followers. And that is a small number. The risen Jesus did not appear to a great number of people at this stage. So the vast majority of John's first readers are like Thomas. And of course, we are in the same boat. We share Thomas's experience. We are called to rely on what other people have seen and to believe that Jesus has risen on the basis of their testimony. And so it comes as no surprise to us that Thomas might struggle to believe what the other disciples are telling him. Many of us would struggle to believe that too. See, Thomas knew that Jesus had been crucified. He knew that Jesus had been buried three days earlier. He was happy with those facts. He knew that Jesus was dead. So he could not bring himself to believe that that same Jesus could have appeared to the disciples three days later. If he was going to believe that, then he needed solid proof. And again, Thomas, if you like, comes into his own 
in the age in which we live. He's a bit of a hero to skeptics throughout history. And a lot of us like the sound of him, if we're honest. He's, he's rational. He's down to earth. And he's definitely not gullible. We like to think that we'd be like Thomas in this sort of situation. While everyone around us is losing their heads, we would remain committed to the facts. We wouldn't let emotion or wishful thinking get in the way. And for many Christians, Thomas is someone we can point to when others tell us, well, surely the early Christians, they were all gullible. They were all just too willing to believe that Jesus is risen. Well, Thomas didn't believe that Jesus was risen straight away. He had doubts, and that reassures people in a sceptical age like ours. But before we look any closer at Thomas's doubts, Thomas's demands for proof here, we need to ask the question, is there room for doubt in the Christian life? See, that's a key question to ask, because sometimes Christians can be portrayed as sort of unthinking fundamentalists. Zealots who believe anything they are told by their leaders. And churches can similarly be seen as places where questions are forbidden or at least strictly policed by the leadership. Christians, it is claimed, aren't allowed to ask tough questions about their faith. Christians aren't allowed to have doubts about their faith. Well, I want to say that a brief glance at the Bible shows just how false that picture is. See, throughout the Bible, believers are described as men and women who frequently ask difficult questions of God, difficult questions of their lives, difficult questions of why the world they live in is the way it is. So if we define doubt as uncertainty, as an awareness that we don't have all the answers, well then there is a considerable amount of doubt in the pages of Scripture. For example, just look at the book of Job and Job's honest and unflinching questioning of God for the suffering he experiences in his life. See, Job doesn't receive answers to a lot of his questions. At the end of the book, he is still in the dark as to why God let him suffer the way he did. And perhaps even more surprisingly to us, at the end of the book, God commands Job for his questions. God commands Job for what he has said about him. God allows Job to ask those questions. Or look at the Psalms. As a younger Christian, the the book of Psalms is one of my favourite books. I would go through the Psalms and underline verses that really encouraged me in my faith. Verses that told me how good and trustworthy and faithful God is. But when I look back over my first Bible, the Bible I had when I was a teenager, I see now there are huge sections of the Psalms that I just didn't underline. Because they just contain the most direct and challenging questions of God and of the world I lived in. Questions that at that stage in my life just made me feel uncomfortable. See, our refrain throughout the Psalms is the question, How long, O Lord? A cry to God for him to stop suffering and injustice and the triumph of evil men. And God does not always answer that question the way the psalmist wants him to. So remember, if you're a Christian here this morning, then the Bible, we believe, is God's word. We believe God inspired these psalms to reveal his character to us and to show us how we can relate to him. 
We believe God inspired the book of Job and meant for us to read it and learn from it about himself and about ourselves. So God has given us a book, the Bible, that is actually very much at home with questioning God. In the pages of Scripture, God actually invites us to ask difficult questions of him. The Bible is a book that acknowledges we do not have all the answers to our questions. And in fact, the Bible is a book that calls on us to trust in God even when we do not know what the future holds for us. See, if doubt is defined as uncertainty, as an awareness we don't have all the answers, then the Bible is full of doubt. It's full of God's people wrestling with doubt. However, I want us to see this morning that that definition of doubt is not quite the doubt we see in Thomas here. And it's not the same doubt that we often indulge in ourselves in our lives today. See again, an acknowledgement that we don't have all the answers is actually a good sign. It's a sign of humility before God. God is God. We are not God. Therefore, we cannot expect to have all the answers. But you see, Thomas displays a different sort of doubt. A doubt that is not as humble or as rational even as we might like to think. Just look at Thomas's demand again in verse 25. Just read that aloud for us. Thomas said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. See, look at what Thomas is asking for here. He doesn't just want to see the nail marks in Jesus' hands. He wants to touch them, to put his fingers in them and to feel around. See, Thomas doesn't just want to see Jesus' wounded side. He wants to put his hand inside it and feel around. See, these are pretty gruesome requests of Thomas. And I think they're evidence that Thomas did not believe he would ever be challenged to act on them. See, what Thomas's demand in verse 25 tells us about Thomas is that his doubt was not disinterested or impartial. It wasn't the result of Thomas wanting to keep an open mind. No, Thomas's doubt was the result of a closed mind. Thomas is convinced that Jesus could not have risen, and therefore his demand for proof was actually an unreasonable demand. You see, if you've ever been tempted to admire doubting Thomas, to hold him up as a rational skeptic who was on the right track when investigating the evidence for the resurrection, then I want us to see one very important thing about him that we often overlook. Thomas was wrong. He was wrong about Jesus. He was wrong to doubt the testimony of the other disciples. He was wrong to deny the possibility that Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus really had risen from the dead. And if Thomas had taken the time to examine the evidence, then he could have found that out for himself. See, far from being the impartial, rational skeptic we often portray him as, Thomas is actually the most unreasonable person in this whole chapter of John's Gospel. 
See, Thomas has heard the eyewitness testimony of the other disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. More than that, the eyewitnesses are his friends, people he has lived with for three years. Surely he could have taken the time to see the joy on their faces, to see the transformation in their lives, that they have seen the risen Jesus. He could have asked, why is it they are so different now? But he didn't. He just refused to believe. See, more than that, Thomas had spent three years of his life following Jesus. He had seen Jesus' power demonstrated again and again. He had heard Jesus predict that he would die and that three days later he would rise again. More than that, back in John 11, Thomas had witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus to life. Thomas had seen Jesus overcome death. So why does he refuse to believe that Jesus could have overcome death for himself? Thomas could have walked to the empty tomb to check if what Mary had said was true. But there's no indication that he did. Thomas stubbornly refuses to believe that Jesus is alive. Thomas's doubt is stubborn and it is unreasonable. And Thomas's doubt, like the doubt many of us can hold sometimes, is actually the sign of a mind that is closed even to the possibility of what God might be capable of. Thomas doesn't want to consider the possibility that Jesus has risen. And in that, he's very similar to many of us today. Because for many people, a living Jesus is just too uncomfortable for us. We cannot understand how Jesus could have risen from the dead, and that bothers us. That bothers us that we cannot pin it down. That bothers us that that makes Jesus a frightening figure. And so many people today dismiss the resurrection. See, a living Jesus demands a response from us. He demands that we take him seriously. A living Jesus cannot be ignored. And as Thomas is about to discover, a living Jesus demands worship and obedience from us. And to ask for that is just too much for many people today. So we decide that it can't be true. Jesus couldn't be alive. We demand unreasonable proofs that Jesus is alive. In short, our doubts are actually excuses designed to leave our lives the way they are. Because if Jesus really is risen, then our lives would have to change. See, we've seen already this morning, the Bible has no problem with honest questions and honest uncertainties about God and about his ways. But I want us to see that all too often our doubts are like Thomas's. We're uncomfortable with a God who is that powerful. We're uncomfortable with a God who challenges us to believe in him, even when it just seems to confound us, his power. We are uncomfortable with a God who does things the way we would not choose to do them. Thomas refused to believe that Jesus was alive. It just didn't make sense to him. He'd gotten his head round the fact that Jesus was dead and he was settling on that. So when the disciples challenged him, he refused to let them challenge him. 
So he refused to believe. And he demands a physical proof of Jesus' resurrection that he never expected would be met. But you see, what Thomas didn't consider was that Jesus might be listening. What Thomas didn't consider was that Jesus might take up his challenge. And that is just what Jesus does a week later. Jesus appears to Thomas personally and Jesus rebukes him. Verses 26 to 27. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. See, Jesus appears to his disciples a week later, and this time Thomas is with them. And Jesus calls Thomas's bluff. You want to feel around the inside of my hands, Thomas? Well, go ahead. Have a good feel. You want to put your hand on my side? Be my guest. Put it in there. Stop doubting and believe, Thomas. See, we're not told whether Thomas actually accepted Jesus' invitation here, but his response in verse 28 makes it seem very unlikely. Thomas sees the risen Jesus, and he is both amazed and terrified. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. In the face of the risen Jesus, Thomas's doubts quickly vanish, and he recognized that the risen Jesus is both Lord and God. So what does Jesus' appearance to Thomas tell us about the risen Jesus? Well, first of all, on a simple level, Jesus is telling Thomas and the other disciples, I am alive. That's verse 20. Jesus appears to his disciples a week after his first appearance to reassure them that he is alive. Again, the doors are locked. Again, the disciples are afraid of the Jewish authorities, even as they begin to comprehend that Jesus is risen. So once again, Jesus greets them and he reassures them. He says, peace be with you. Jesus is telling them, I am alive. I have given you peace with God and I am committed to keeping you. Jesus is telling the disciples, you don't have to fear the hostility of the world because I have overcome the world. I have overcome death. I am alive. Jesus declares peace to the disciples here. And his words would have been a great comfort to them. As they are a great comfort to Christians around the world today. Secondly, Jesus' appearance to Thomas gave Jesus the opportunity to demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt the physical reality of the resurrection. Jesus tells the disciples, I am real. Verse 27. See, the risen Jesus isn't a ghost, he's telling them. He's not a figment of the disciples' imagination. He's not merely a spiritual or mystical experience or awakening in the disciples. No, Jesus is real, he's telling them. His body was dead, now his body is risen. The physical reality of Jesus' resurrection is absolutely central to Christian life and hope. So Jesus wants his disciples left in no doubt 
I am real. Feel the wounds in my hand. Feel my side. I am real, he's telling them. And then the third thing we learn about the risen Jesus is that he demands a response from us. Because it's not enough for Thomas to accept that Jesus really is risen. No, Jesus challenges him to believe in him. To place his trust in him. To place his whole life in Jesus' hands as the risen king. Because belief in John's gospel is never simply an acknowledgement that, that something is true. No, belief in John's gospel changes everything. Belief in Jesus is the beginning of a new life. And that new life is a life that will follow Jesus as Lord and God. And that's Thomas's response in verse 28. See, if Jesus is risen, then he has shown himself to be Lord of all creation. Lord even over death. And if Jesus is risen, then all the claims Jesus made about himself are true. He really is God on earth. He really is God made man. And as a result, he is the right and the authority to demand worship and obedience from us. He demands it from Thomas. And you see in verse 28, Thomas gives it. From this point onwards, Thomas will follow Jesus as his Lord and as his God. Thomas would go on to follow him for the rest of his life. So he wants to see here that this one encounter with the risen Jesus didn't answer all of Thomas's questions. It didn't tell Thomas everything he needed to know about Jesus. It didn't tell him everything he needed to know about what it meant to follow Jesus. But crucially for Thomas, it told him enough to recognize who Jesus was and to entrust his life into his hands. So what are we to make of Thomas's encounter with Jesus? We've already seen from verse 24 that in many ways Thomas is like us in this chapter. Like us, he wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared. He wasn't there. He didn't see it with his own eyes. But in verse 29, Jesus turns from Thomas to all of us. And he issues a challenge to us. Verse 29. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, Jesus is gracious with Thomas here. He is patient with Thomas here. But he also makes it clear we cannot all expect Jesus to appear to us personally as he does to Thomas here. Instead, we are challenged by Jesus to believe the testimony of those who did see him risen from the dead. And we find that testimony in the pages of the Gospels. We're challenged to believe that testimony without actually seeing the risen Jesus. And if we do believe that testimony, then Jesus tells us we will be blessed by him. So Jesus' encounter with Thomas illustrates both the challenge of belief, but also the blessing of belief. The challenge of belief is put simply, will we believe 
God's word? Will we believe the Bible when it tells us that these people saw the risen Jesus? Because through Thomas's experience, John is telling us that the risen Jesus can overcome our doubts. If we examine those eyewitness accounts, then we can have confidence, John tells us, that Jesus is risen. See, John's gospel is full of seeing, of eyewitnesses seeing Jesus reveal God's character and inviting our faith. In John's gospel, seeing is believing. Jesus makes God known. He makes God visible. And if we see Jesus, John claims, we have seen God. The challenge for us is, will we look at Jesus? For example, Jesus' death is recorded in great detail in John. It's a rigorous eyewitness account that demands we examine it. In John 19, verse 35, I'm going to turn back a page. After recording Jesus' side being pierced, John tells us, verse 35 of chapter 19, The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. See, John challenges us to examine this account of Jesus' death. And he's confident that when we do that, we will see that it is accurate and trustworthy. And then we come to the accounts of the resurrection itself. And all the way through, we are told of what the disciples saw. Mary Magdalene saw the stone rolled away. And she saw the risen Lord. Peter and John saw the empty tomb. And John saw and believed, verse 8 of chapter 20. The disciples saw the risen Jesus in verse 20. And they are overjoyed. Seeing is believing for those disciples. And the challenge for us is, will we see with them the risen Jesus and will we believe in him? See, if you're not a Christian here this morning, that is Jesus' direct challenge to you. Examine those eyewitness accounts for yourself. Explore them. Don't dismiss them. And John tells you in verse 31 of chapter 20 that if you place your faith in the risen Jesus you will have life in his name. And if you're already a Christian here this morning, then Jesus is telling you, have confidence in what you believe. Have confidence that Jesus really is risen and that he has given you life. And then live your life with the risen Jesus as your Lord and your God. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, the risen Jesus is your Lord. So trust in him. Verse 26 tells us Jesus has come to give us peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. And he will lead you into eternal resurrection life in a physical restored creation. So he asks us here, stop doubting my goodness. Stop doubting my power to keep you. See, Jesus is a loving and gracious Lord and his purposes for you are good. He is able to change you and to keep you close to him. He was able to overcome death. He was able to transform Thomas completely in a moment. And he is able to transform you into the man or woman that Jesus wants you to be.
the risen Jesus is your Lord if you're a Christian here. He's also your God. And that is wonderful news. Because the God who reveals himself through Jesus is a glorious God. He's a God who forgives sins. He is a God who is gentle with those who doubt. He's a God who is gracious with people who stumble. He is a God who has got the power to defeat his enemies, to overcome every obstacle that stands in our way to knowing and loving him. See, if you're a Christian, this risen Jesus is your Lord and your God. So trust in him and follow him. See, at the beginning of this account, Thomas's refusal to believe the other disciples only denied him the joy of knowing this Jesus. His refusal to believe was unreasonable. It was stubborn. It demonstrated a closed mind. So Jesus challenges us, don't make the same mistake that Thomas did. Believe in Jesus. Entrust your life into his hands and he will bless you, even though you have not physically seen him risen. You won't have the answers to every question. You won't always understand his purposes for your life. Thomas didn't get every answer here. But if we let ourselves have our eyes opened by Jesus, if we see him risen as Thomas does here, then we will know enough to trust in him and to believe him when he says he wants to prosper us and give us hope and a future. Jesus tells Thomas he's risen. He challenges Thomas that he is Lord and God. And those are extravagant claims. But Thomas discovers here, we serve a Lord, if we are Christians, a Lord of extravagant power, of extravagant grace, and of extravagant mercy, if we will only trust in him.